So if you, uh, if you will, grab a, a copy of the Holy Scriptures, the, the Bible in any format you want. Uh, I think uh, paper format, digital format. Uh, if you want to be just like Jesus in the passage we're actually going to read today, you can get out the scroll. We'll all be really impressed with that. Um, we might ask you to read from it, though, so be dangerous. Be careful doing that. Um, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 4 today. So as you just head that way, and we'll start in verse 14, but you can start heading that way. Now, last time we gathered, before the, the great blizzard of 2018 that shut everything down last week, we, uh, we learned about Jesus being led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, where after 40 days of fasting, 40 days of not eating anything, he was tempted by the devil. Uh, but, but Jesus, we, we saw, is called the, the second Adam. And Jesus, as the second Adam, was able to do what the first Adam failed to do, which was to live in perfect obedience to the Father. And so that's, that's where we're coming from as we enter into this passage today. Because today what we're seeing is, is Jesus returning from the wilderness after that time. And he goes into this, this area of Galilee, the region of Galilee, right? And during this, we're going to see that he's, he's greatly praised by those who, who listen to his teaching. And, and we're going to see him then in one specific instance, instance um, where, where he has something to say to the people, where he teaches in such a way and with so much weight that it's going to shake the foundation of those who hear it. And so today we're, we're actually breaking up one larger passage into two here. And today we're going to focus on, on Christ and his life, his practices, and the content uh, of what he says. And then next week, we're going to look at the way that the people actually respond to him uh, fully um, as, they, as they respond to this first of his recorded sermons. And so uh, let's just go ahead and read Luke chapter 14. Nope, Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up and he read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord God, we can't possibly know why we exist and what we are to do with our lives if we do not know why you devised an eternal plan to send Jesus into the world. Help us to discover or to rediscover the answer to both those questions, as we focus in on, on Jesus, as he reveals a deeper understanding of the salvation he has come to accomplish. Holy Trinity, may you be glorified in the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So after being tempted in the wilderness, Jesus 
goes to Galilee. That's, that's a region. It's an area like uh, many of you that are away from where you grew up. If you were to go back to your home state or to the county you were from, uh, we would begin to get an idea of, of what we're talking about here. And then we're told here in verse 14 that, that he returns in the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we've seen that so often in Luke that we're almost blowing past that phrase and not really, really taking it in or understanding what he's talking about here. And, and, and we've seen it so much. I mean, in fact, have you noticed that, that all of Jesus' life is lived in the power of the Holy Spirit? He, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's baptized by the Holy Spirit, lead, led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He resists the temptations of the devil by the Holy Spirit. Not, not long after this, we're going to see that Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. As you go through the Gospels, we see this over and over, that Jesus' entire life is lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. But what about you? What, what about me? I mean, let me ask you, have you ever done anything in the power of the Holy Spirit? Anything. Now, that might sound like a guilt question, right? Like I'm about to pile on you and you're going to walk out of here feeling horrible. Uh, but I actually asked you that because I, I want to try to encourage you in, in this area because you might just be thinking, you know, I, I don't know if I ever have done anything in the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it, it might help to know then that if your faith is in Christ, if you look to Christ as your Savior, then you are indeed filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? And that might sound weird to some of you. You think, you know what, I don't feel that. But you are. That's the reality of the gospel coming into your life, the union you have with Christ. And understand, it's not that you could be or might be. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because God promises to fill us with the Holy Spirit. So, so not only that, though, but, but you've likely shown the fruit of the Spirit in your life, even if you've never stopped to acknowledge that that's a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Something done in, in the power of, of the Holy Spirit. For, for instance, believing the gospel. That is actually done in the power of the Holy Spirit as he lives and works in you. If you pray, I mean truly pray, where you talk to God and believe and understand that God is hearing you, then you are doing that, you are doing so in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you respond to some rude co-workers of yours with, with kindness and love, genuine kindness and love, not just empty words, but if you can do that, that's the work of the Holy Spirit working in you. When you find that you are able to be patient, as a, a parent or a roommate or a spouse, patient with those around you, that, that is in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and if you sin and you acknowledge it as sin and you repent, asking God to forgive you, even that is the, is the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And, and I'm saying these things, I want you to see these things because, because so much of our life, it can be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. So much of our life already is and we simply don't acknowledge it. But, but again, so much more of it could be if we just remember that we truly are filled with the Holy Spirit. If we know that the power of the third person of the Trinity actually indwells us. And that just sounds bizarre to us sometimes. But it's true. And, and, and so know you and of yourself, you, you are not strong enough to, to obey Christ and his commandments in Scripture. You simply aren't. But, but the Holy Spirit within you is more than strong enough. That, and the strength of, uh, of the Holy Spirit is yours through union with Christ. And so you can engage in that battle. You can see some victories. 
And so, Christian, live your life today in the power of the Holy Spirit, which you do indeed have. Know that. We're going to come back to this, though. And, you know, that's a bit of a a side bit here. But, But what we see here is Jesus is traveling in the area, right, his county, and suddenly he decides to go back to his actual hometown uh, where he's from. Now, as we look at what he's doing here, it'd be an absolute mistake of us not to notice what Jesus' practice in life is. After his time in the wilderness, right, being tempted out there alone with his father, uh, now he's going from town to town, and on every Sabbath he goes to the synagogue. And he goes there to be with God's people, to learn, and to worship his heavenly father. See, That's Jesus' pattern of life, and and I pray, I hope, that that our pattern of life is no different than that. That that we are also making it a pattern of our life, that on the Lord's day, we gather with the Lord's people to to worship Him, no matter where we find ourselves. Now, I I know right now, this is almost the definition of preaching to the choir, right? You're here on the Lord's day. But I I hope that that's not already your practice, that that you'll consider to follow following Jesus' example here to make corporate worship a priority in your life and the life of your family. And so then, Jesus is in his home region, and he's he's teaching in these synagogues. Do you you know what a synagogue is? Because that's not a word we really use very often in our life. Uh, It's literally translated from this word that just means assembly, uh, a a gathering of people, right? So that's the the simple definition of it. But each town actually had a synagogue, a bit like a church. uh, And it was set apart for for Jewish people to gather together to worship and to to learn. And and we know from historical records actually quite a bit about what a a service in the synagogue would be. They'd begin by singing uh, one of the last five psalms in the the Psalter. And if you were to go look at those, you'd find they're just complete praise to God type type psalms. Uh, And then they would recite the Shema. We we actually use it as an affirmation of faith sometimes. You might remember it it begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, and and goes on to a bunch of other stuff. Um, And so they would recite that every time. And then they would read these eight benedictions, um, just words of, of encouragement, and after that, an officer in the, in the, uh, one of the Jewish officers would, would read from the Torah, meaning the law, the first five books in your Bible is what we call the Torah, the law. And they would, they would read from that. And, and next, there was another reading that came from the prophets, uh, which included the histori- what we call the history portions of the Bible as well. And, and then there would be a, a sermon on that passage where someone would explain what it means. And then the service concluded with a, a responsive reading of Numbers 6, 24 through 26, with each section followed by the people responding with amen. And, and, and the way that goes is the Lord bless you and keep you. And the people would say, amen. Uh, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the people would say, amen. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the people would say, amen. And, and if I hadn't printed the bulletin so early in the week this week, that's the way we would end our service today. But we didn't do that, so uh, we'll just have to pretend we were, we were wise enough to have done included that. Anyway, so, so then the service would come to an end, and that, that would be the end of it. That's, that's the liturgy, the, the order of worship that Jesus is taking part of in this passage. That's, that's the wider view of what's happening here. Uh, and he's in the very synagogue that he grew up in. He knows these people. These people know him. Maybe it's been a while since they, they've seen him. We don't know. Um, but, but they recognize him. They know who he is. And that's going to become a really significant part of the passage that we look at next week. But today, let's just keep moving. So, so most likely then, before the service began, the president of the synagogue uh, would have asked Jesus, Hey, will you do the second reading for us? Will you read the prophets and, and, and give the sermon or the teaching? 
and, and then it's time, and it's time. And so one of the offers goes and retrieves this scroll, right? Everything we do is so quick, but they receive this scroll, and he has to open it up and, and, and gives it to Jesus. And he stands up. He moves to the front of the people of the room so they'll be able to hear him. And he has to find the right place in Isaiah. And you're thinking about a scroll that has um, absolutely no chapters, absolutely no, no verses in there. And so he just has to know where things are within this and able to find it, which tells us he's incredibly familiar with the scripture. And once he finds Isaiah 61, he, he reads and it includes some of the wording from Isaiah 58, 6, uh, which says something very similar. And, and so standing before the gathering, he reads this. I'm going to read it again so it's fresh in our mind. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after he reads that passage, he explains that passage. We call that today expositional preaching is a term. And it's just this simple view of preaching that rather than just standing up here and saying you whatever I want to tell you about the world and whatnot, actually takes a bit of scripture, reads it, and then explains what it means. Because there's a belief in the power of God's word that way. It's a model for the way preaching should be done today. And so in Jesus' sermon, we see it appears to be incredibly short, right? You think, no, that's the way you should preach, Brian. It's got... What, eight words right there, and we're done. We could... So you've got to understand, though, that is just the beginning of his sermon, um, a summary of it in some regards. It would have been a lot more involved there. Uh, but yes, it would have been way better than this sermon you're hearing today or any other sermon anyone's ever preached. Um, and, and this is the portion, though, that's, that's recorded here. This is what the, the little bit of Christ's sermon that day that the Lord intends for his church to know from every generation. And, and he's quoting, right? He's it's coming from Isaiah. And when Isaiah first writes this passage, it kind of helps to understand this. He, he's talking uh, about uh, a time when, when the Babylonians had conquered Israel and, and they drugged them off into slavery to, to serve them. And, and they were captive for over 70 years. Now, that's many generations, if you think about that. Many generations. And, and yet Jesus' point as he, as he reads this is to apply it to himself and, and his purpose for, for why he is coming to live among us. Why God the incarnate comes to live among his people. And as I've said, it's, it's expositional preaching, but it's also Christ-centered preaching. He's explaining the Old Testament through, uh, through the lens of himself, Right? And so it takes on this whole new meaning and, 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 and reflection that, that Christ has now come or is at that moment coming. And, and so we, when we preach to, today, we, we, we should seek to show Jesus in the passage. This is true even when we are preaching through a psalm or, or any of the other Old Testament passages because the Bible is a single story about the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's the ultimate view of that. All, all of Scripture is, is pointing to this glorious Redeemer of ours. And so then after he reads it, we're, we're told that he rolls up the, the scroll and he sits back down, um, gives it to the attendant, and then he sits back down. And, and then he drops this, this bomb of revelation on the, on the Jews that are sitting there today. And he says, today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Fulfilled. Jesus completes what Isaiah's prophecy promised. 
Now, I want us to look at that real quickly, what it, what it means as we go through those things. First, in verse 18, he says that God anointed me, and, and we might not understand that. We might not hear it in the same way. All those that are present, the Jewish people understood what he meant by this. He's saying, I am the Messiah, the Christ, that you have been waiting 600 years for. And so then, if, if I were to ask you today, I guess I am asking you. So I am asking you today, what has God the Father sent Jesus the Son to do? I mean, that's a kind of basic Christian question, isn't it? And you wonder, how might you answer that if I were just to ask it off the cuff, right? And here's where I find this so intriguing, is I don't think that most of us would give the answer that we read in this passage. And that's absolutely intriguing, and it also tells me that we have something more probably to live, my, or to learn, myself included here. We, we, you know, we might say that Jesus was sent to save sinners, and we'd be absolutely correct. We, we might say that Jesus is, was sent to redeem a people for the Father, and again, we'd be absolutely correct. That's absolutely true from Scripture. But, but look at this passage. He, here, and instead of seeing that answer, we, we here what we see are four categories of people who Jesus has sent to do something for, to proclaim something to. Four categories, the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. Now, it's important that we remember that, that, that the Jews had their own ideas of what the Messiah would accomplish. They had this whole idea. This is what our Messiah is going to be. Here's what he's going to do. And, and these are our expectations. And in each of these categories, we, we see indeed what the Jews wanted in a Messiah. Some of them, many of them, wanted, wanted a social revolution, right? To, that, that he'd give the poor a higher standard of living and thereby improve everyone's life. That's what they wanted the Messiah to do. So, some wanted a, a medical revolution of sorts. That, that we'd come and, and heal everyone who, who suffered of, of disease or any other suffering. So, some wanted a political revolution. In fact, most of them wanted a political revolution where, where Christ, the Messiah, as they understood, they thought, well, he's going to show up and then we're going to overthrow the Romans and suddenly we're going to be a self-governing nation again. That, that was the glorious good news they wanted to hear. But, but praise the Lord here because as it's still true today, Jesus doesn't give them what they want. Jesus gives them what they need. It's a lot for us to learn in that as we walk through our own lives. Now, verse 18 says that Jesus comes to proclaim good news to the poor. And as Americans, I think we're quick to be like, okay, what's next? Uh, not us. In biblical terms, the, the poor are those who are at the mercy of others for survival because of terrible circumstances in their lives. And so then... You know, is, is this a question, is this a statement about people who are financially poor? And the answer is yes, yes it is. But, but it's also a, a, a means spiritually poor as well. See, Jesus wasn't bringing a mere social gospel set on raising the standard of living. He, he certainly cares about the poor. We, we see that all throughout his ministry. And yet here he comes to give something far superior, to give them forgiveness of their sins, to give them a place in this glorious kingdom, his glorious kingdom, filled with unseen treasures forevermore. Right? Things that these, they couldn't possibly have dreamed of being able to obtain as the poor. And yet Jesus is often, right, like I said, later in his ministry, looking out for the poor, and we should too. We really should be. See, if the Lord sees fit... 
to, to give us this, this building. Many of you know we, we've got 10% down on this and a donor who we're, we're, we're praying and hoping is going to end up getting this building. And, and we all understand that ultimately that's going to be a work of the Lord. And if the Lord sees fit to do so, but we really want to host a, a Saturday lunch for the community meal program. It's this meal that is provided for those who, who, who are in need in our community. And it exists on every other day of the week, uh, uh, every other day of the week, and it's put on by churches in this, in this area. Uh, churches that, if we're honest, we typically would refer to as theologically liberal. Churches who do an incredible job of providing for the temporal needs of these people uh, who are less fortunate, but fail to point them uh, to Jesus uh, as a way, as a person who can provide for their eternal needs of these very same people. And so that's a, a desire we want to see, right? So in Jesus, though, what we see here is, is what should be true of us as well. As, as Philip Ryken once said, he says, there can be no contradiction between proclaiming the gospel and caring for people in need. Now, I, I think we as a church do a good job of, of holding firm to the gospel, to the inerrancy of Scripture, that, that you need Christ, that it is your greatest need in the entire world. But sometimes churches that, that do a good job of understanding the gospel do a really poor job uh, of understanding caring for, for other people and their temporal needs. And one of the things we want to understand is that, that you, you ought to be both. That's the point of Reichen's statement right there, right? Those, those things shouldn't be contradictory. They should be together. And we see that in Christ's ministry. Um, so let's keep going here. We then see that Jesus has been sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, the word captives is most often used to just mean uh, captives in the sense of prisoners of war. Uh, but it also might include people that have actually sold themselves into slavery because they owed a debt and could not pay it off. Uh, and again, this has physical and spiritual reality uh, going on here. And in fact, the, the Greek word here for liberty is actually at time used to mean to forgive. Whether we're talking about to forgive someone's debt or to forgive someone's penalties that they've incurred. And, and Jesus is indeed referring to the forgiveness of sin that he will accomplish for his people here. Now, th then we see that God has anointed Jesus to give sight to those who are blind. And, and Jesus is going to uh, heal people that have, are blind, right? That's how you say that. Uh, and he's going to give sight to them and, and, and during his ministry. And again, though, overwhelmingly what we're seeing here is there is this, this spiritual blindness that he's talking about. And so uh, Jesus' mission here, right, becomes Paul's mission when he calls Paul to be a follower of his and particularly to be an apostle of his. And in Acts, uh, uh, Acts 26, 18, Jesus tells Paul that his ministry is going to be this. He says, um, you are to, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. Right? To give sight. Not that Paul will ultimately give sight, but he's going to proclaim a message so that Christ gives sight. Now then the last category of people Jesus comes to set free here are, are the oppressed. Those who are broken or crushed in spirit because of hard situations, often intentionally caused by, by other people, uh, people with power that they don't have. Uh, we'd include abuse of all sorts in this category. And, and Jesus makes clear, while oppressors can refuse people's safety, while they can refuse freedom and wealth and respect, they, they cannot stop the gospel that Jesus proclaims. And so we, we see all these. And then, and then Jesus ends his proclamation here saying that he has been anointed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now that's one of those phrases that we can just kind of, when we're reading on our own, I think we cruise past it and think, well, that sounds interesting and keep going. But um, it actually is a reference back to Leviticus 25.10, which there it is referred to as a year of jubilee. See, in the, in the life of Israel, they had built into it by, by God's design that every 50 years was to be declared this, this year of amnesty, meaning uh, to pardon, to um, set someone or, or things back free. Many of you that have lived here for very long, if you've been here in the summer, you probably know this, that Manhattan has their annual Furniture Amnesty Day. I remember thinking, what in the world is that the first time I heard it? What it is, is residents here are asked to uh, take furniture that they have, that they've been, they've been uh, keeping captive but not actually using, and then to take it down to City Park, thereby setting it free, and then others are invited to come and take that furniture who plan to actually use that furniture. Um, so, the, you know, that's the idea there. Now, now, the amnesty that we're talking about here in the year of Jubilee is so much more significant, right? Same idea, billion more times more significant. Slaves were set free in the year of Jubilee. Financial debts were considered paid in the year of Jubilee. Property and land was returned to its rightful owner in the year of Jubilee. And now in this moment, as Christ is saying this, uh, in this local synagogue, Jesus is announcing the jubilee to end all jubilees. And you get that. He is proclaiming the gospel. And at the same time, he himself is the gospel. Sins will be forgiven. Your debt will be paid off. Slaves to their sin will be set free. He's saying he himself is ushering in this time of the Lord's favor. Why? Because the promise that God made to mankind in the garden right after the fall of man has finally been put into motion, is finally becoming an an actual reality. Jesus has come to the earth as a sacrifice to restore us to God. I mean, you get this. The, the waiting is over is what he's saying. And I don't know if the weight of that hits us right because we're like, yeah, it's been over for 2,000 years. But the weight of that in this moment is over and it's glorious. You know, this is the Lord's favor. And so think about this. Here's the question we've got to ask ourselves when we look at these categories. Do, do you see yourself in those four categories? Remember, they're poor, the captive, the blind and the oppressed. Do you, do you see yourselves there? Because when we recognize our brokenness, when we recognize our bondage and our blindness, the gospel meets us fully and, and restores us. Our R.C. Sproul um, once said, I, I, don't, I don't reach out for a Savior unless I first am convinced that I have need of a Savior. See, brothers and sisters, apart from the Holy Spirit, we are poor because we have absolutely nothing to offer God. We are spiritually poor. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we are are blind. We, We can't even see our need of a Savior. We can't even see that. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we are are held captive by all sorts of evil, right? You, You know them, right? Dishonesty. Sexual perversion or sins of all sorts, selfish ambitions, greed, pride, self-righteousness. You know, apart from the Holy Spirit, we, we, we live in these shackles, shackles of guilt. But listen, brother, the, the, the guilt, you know, let me ask you, what, what guilt is enslaving your soul? And that's not just a question you ask an unbeliever. 
Even as, as followers of Christ, you know, you, you find yourself, sometimes we, we find ourselves in, in some guilt that is just enslaving our soul. You see, for that, for, for you, Jesus has come and he proclaims the gospel. The good news that, that you can be set free, you can be provided for, you, you can have eyes of faith to look upon Jesus. You, you, you can be forgiven and redeemed and, and welcomed into the family of God. And if you are a Christian, you, all that is true, you are in the family of God. And so Christians, earlier I, I spoke about doing things in the power of the Spirit. For, uh, for you to, to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit today, you know, it, it might mean that you need to admit your need in some area of your life. We, we play this, this game of pretending. Um, pretending we've, we've got it all together. Or if you're really good at this game, you, you're willing to show people some of your messes just so they won't notice any of the real messes you're trying to hide. You see, if we're, if we're concerned about appearances, though, we, we, we miss the gracious hand of our Lord reaching out for us with the good news of the gospel. In, in the power of the Spirit, then, you know, confess where your struggles with sin are. Confess them to God. If necessary, Confess them to trusted brothers or sisters in Christ who can come alongside as you, you seek to fight this that can help you, encourage you to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, in, in this life, we will never, ever be sinless. We will never win every battle against sin until the Lord Jesus returns and we are glorified. But, but because of the gospel, we are, we're no longer a slave to it. We are, we're not ruled by our sin like we once were. You see, Jesus died for it, and he, and he placed the Holy Spirit in us to, to fight the good fight of faith for us. See, if you, if you know your great need, and you have found the refreshing joy of throwing yourself on the mercies of God in the gospel, remember that today. What I mean is don't ever, don't ever let the wonder, the awe of that reality, of your sin being forgiven in Christ, grow stale. Don't ever let that happen. Because remember that you are all of these categories. You are. And the Lord has come for you. Rejoice in that. And use that freedom that comes with that. Use your freedom to, to proclaim the good news to others who are just as needy as every one of us in this room today. See, if you're, if you're not a Christian... I encourage you to go home. This is Luke chapter 4. Look this up. Read it again. Read the passage. Look at those categories and begin to pray. Just asking that the Lord will show you your poverty. It will show you the shackles of your captivity, your blindness, and how sin has oppressed you. Ask Him to show you this so that you can learn the joy, the eternal relief, the hope that Jesus brings us when He brings us Himself. Today, as Advent begins, we, we celebrate Christ's coming, and we tend to think of him as, as just a baby at that moment. But we're celebrating the, the whole aspect of Christ's coming, all that he's done for us, the, the, the way the gospel has set us free. I mean, there is weight on your shoulders from sin, but, but the forgiveness we receive in the gospel lifts that weight so we can seek the Lord and find joy in the Lord. Oh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, although every one of us is financially rich in comparison to the rest of the world, 
We ask that you would show us our our spiritual poverty, our, our need of you. Though we live in the land of the free, show us where our hearts have been captive and and set us free in the gospel. Though we have healthy eyes, most of us, we are often blind to the truth of of your word. Open our eyes to see you, to see genuine truth, even as we we dwell in a a secular culture that, that calls everything truth. O Lord, may we never grow tired of the good news of your coming to us so that you can bring us to yourself, restoring that relationship. May the glory of your sovereign plan be the the worship of our hearts throughout our days, including this one, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.